Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Am I tough enough? Strong and stable leadership. Total rhubarb. Hell yes, I'm tough enough. Shut the fridge. Not another one. It's the Politics Show podcast. Love podcasts, hate nonsense. It's the Politics Show podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Ow! Oh my God. Do you think people switch off doing this? <laughs> Some people don't like it. It's so. tempting, you know, when he asks for a big crew clap to like not do it. <laughs> just set me by myself. Yeah. Just, just sort of sit there like. Um, thanks for joining us and joining me today. It's the golden boy of politics, Joe Ed Campbell. Hello. And the capital J journalist, Ava Santina. Thanks. What's your, nick- what's your nickname? Didn't stutter. Uh, Media Darling. <laughs> yeah. Self-described media darling. But because I do the intros, it never comes out. Okay. Big but, timer. But you know, yeah. That's what you think in your head before L- you speak. LBC, BBC. Say what you call him behind the scenes. What do I call is him? Is it you or is it Sean? I don't know. I'm not saying it. What is it? No, I'm, I'm not saying it. Say it now. I don't, I don't think it is me. It must be Sean. What does Sean call him? I'm, not, call I'm me? not saying it. It makes me feel Sean, what do you call Ollie? <laughs> yeah. You Daddy. called him? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's not me. Uh, Daddy. Yeah. Um, Is that what you wrote down? Yes. <laughs> Just making a note of that. Uh, it's like an affirmations thing, you know? Um, make note of it. Uh, a big, big, big week. Three by-elections. One breakup. Wow. Okay. Sorry, I just needed to make it about myself for one second. Okay, I was going to say, drop a comment. Guess who's single now? No. No. Let's move on. <laughs> Let's move on. Um, so, shall we talk about by elections? Three by elections. Yeah. Three by elections, not a clean sweep. Um, one apiece. It's a score draw. One each. Mm. That's, that's fair. Lived down yeah. the that seems nice. and Labour, yeah. A kinder, gentler politics. A, everyone a, gets one oh. by-election. <laughs> a little treat. Have a by-election victory as a treat. And still um, nothing for Gina Martin. <laughs> still nothing. Still going. Um, so to, for anyone who doesn't know the results, quick run through. Uxbridge and South Roy slip. Uh, Steve Tuckwell, the Tory, beat Labour's Danny Beals. Selby and Ainsty, Keir Mather? Mather? 
Mother. Mother? Matt hair. Yeah, I don't know. I Matt don't hair. Know. I've heard it different on every broadcast. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what we need to get to the bottom of. Yeah. We so could have checked before. We could have done. Could have. But that Maybe he's still deciding. <laughs> <laughs> um, he won there, and the Lib Dems won in Somerton and Froome. Uh, Sarah Dyke, 21,000 votes. A stonking. Mm. Stonking result yeah. for the Lib Dems. Yeah. You had a lot to say about uh, Sarah the morning that she won. It was. Did I? Yeah. What was that? You took to Twitter to repost that video <laughs> where she clearly didn't know <laughs> anything about the constituents. So because, <laughs> because I, uh, I tweeted, yeah. <laughs> you've got a lot to say because yeah. it's so rare. But you don't tweet very much. No. And when you do, I think, God, he must, that must be really Well, because, of, you know, him. I like to, you know, save my interventions so that when I have something to say, it really breaks the internet. You know? <laughs> if, if Ollie tweets, just know he spent two hours composing it. <laughs> Agonizing. Um, no, I just thought it was funny, you know, that, that, that vi- the video I tweeted, it was her being interviewed about standing in the campaign four weeks out from polling day and John Harris in a very non-confrontational way says, you know, what about, I think it's talking about wealth inequality, you know, some of the impoverished areas in your constituency. And she just had nothing to say, mm-hmm. like literally says nothing. Do you know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of that extremely hostile interview that I did with Helen, Helen Morgan in <laughs> North Shropshire. Do you remember that? I went alone to that remember. big country estate. When you say extremely hostile, to be clear, it wasn't hostile questioning. It yeah. was host, hostile answering of questions. Hostile answering of was questions. Was she the Lib Dem candidate? She was, yeah. She's now, she's Oh, she's she won. won. Yeah. Good for her. Yeah. Well, you remember that shoot very well. You were there. <laughs> so, so it was a year and a half ago. I was not there. Yes, you were. Not there. You were. No, no, no. You didn't come into the country house. Yeah, I remember. Me. I remember um, indoor gamer. Yeah. And so does everyone else. Yeah. No one. Re- sorry. No one remembers. Sorry, the Laura, but I think we should put the indoor gamer clip in now. David, did you have a Christmas party last year? No. No. I'm generally an indoor gamer, so. Not really much changed for me last year. Oh, I was going to say, when I asked her about Helen Morgan, about small boats, it was, it was right in the middle of the big small boats. Well, <laughs> one of the crises that we <laughs> allegedly had. Mm. But it was headline, front page. And I asked her about it. And she, she looked at me, refused to speak anymore, and was like, I don't understand why that's relevant to me. And I was like, well, this has been lovely, Helen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to leave. <laughs> They're also quite, it's also, it makes me laugh when... There's new or parliamentary candidates are surprised that you want to ask them questions. Like I doorstep Danny Beals on their Wednesday, and he just seemed he, was, he just the the attitude seemed kind of why are you here? I should be left alone. I shouldn't have face scrutiny. But no, that's probably unfair to Danny. But it it just seems very like a lack of understanding on why the media would be interested in the views of a parliamentary candidate. Do you remember when um, Kim Ledbetter refused to speak to us in Batley and Yeah, Spen? that was really funny. Um, standing, Kim kind of gets a pass away. because of the whole, you know. Was well, it? yes. Uh, she is Joe Cox's sister, was Joe Cox's sister. Um, the, they were like, no, um, all interviews have to be signed off via central office. And Nash Shah was stood next to her. So yeah. then we interviewed Nash Shah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you get complaints of, but you didn't interview all the candidates. Yeah, we'll try. They'd have to put themselves up for interview, wouldn't they? I um, was actually kind of relieved. This is gonna, this is really bad. But I, th- this is not how you should do politics. But there was a part of me that thought, I'm almost glad he didn't win that because I thought he was so rude to you in that interview. Sorry, <laughs> I really did, and I just thought it. Not that it, I'm not talking personally here or like a personal reason. I just thought if you are going to be that 
rude to the press or people who want to um, amplify you or talk to you or understand your policies before you even got into office. And maybe it's not your time. That's mm. what I thought. Do you think the, the tiny margin is people who saw the interview <laughs> <laughs> and thought there's no way he should have st stopped to talk to politics show. He shouldn't have had a, a walking interview. It should have been a I think, standing. No, I think, um, I think there's two things. I think there's two very obvious things at play for uh, Danny Bills in Uxbridge. I think the first is, what was, the, what was his majority? What was the Tories' majority? Four I've got a note of it. 495, right? And then the Greens get 893 votes. Um, so that's, that's literally left-wing pressure on the Labour Party. But the more obvious thing is that 20,000 Brunel students weren't there and would be voting in that by-election. And I think that would carry, that would carry it for, for the Labour Party. It's Glastonbury Brexit all over again. <laughs> Exactly. Um, so what you're saying is, if there hadn't been strikes at the universities and those had been sorted, then perhaps <laughs> Labour would have won. No, it was term yeah, time. Well, you, they might have stayed. <laughs> <laughs> they stayed in Uxbridge. What are you doing over the summer? Everything in Uxbridge. Yes. Um, so that's Uxbridge. Tick that off. And we've done a bit of Somerton and Frame. Let's talk about um, the in-betweener. Keir. Keir 2. Junior Keir. Keir Junior. Keir Junior. We Keir. We, yeah. Let's talk about We Keir. Um, who Johnny Mercer accused of, well, not accused, said he was an in-betweener. Called him in-betweener. I think you say accused him of being young. <laughs> yeah, well, also technically that. 25 years old, is that too young? Is that too young to be an MP? No. Uh, no, well, yes and no. Yes and no. Because this is, this is really bad. No, because you were elected and I don't think, if you look at the House of Commons and you look at some of the people who've been there for 20, 30 years and you think, Jesus Christ, you don't know anything about being an MP. <laughs> so I don't understand why age qualifies you for that. But there probably is an argument that maybe you should have some time in industry and out and about before you become a career politician. I hear that. Um, I think the counter to it is that people from that, people who have that experience are already um, very well represented in the House of Commons. I think we need... Um, we need more himbos. We need, no, I think I'm, I'm, I'm all for more young people um, being better represented in Parliament, to be honest with you. I think you yeah. know, whether it's a 25-year-old in the House of Commons or a 30-year-old in the House of Lords, um, having more young people scrutinising legislation, participating in the legislative process, I think it's a good thing. Um, I think there's other ways we could have better representation in Parliament as well. For example, disabled people, neurodivergent people, I think they're woefully underrepresented as well. Um, well, Parliament. it's all to play for now, though, isn't it? Because what we've heard from Keir so far is a direct repeat of the official Labour line. And you could say that that perhaps is just part of campaigning and perhaps that was just a, a way to win the by-election. Fine, that was just playing politics. But if he is going to go into Parliament as a young person and say things like, there's not enough money left in the pot <laughs> and we can't afford to help first-time buyers get onto the housing ladder and I don't really care about rent being extortionate. Then, Did he say that? No, but I'm hypothesizing. <laughs> I'm hypothesizing. I'm yeah. saying if you are to say those things that you, yeah. you tend to hear from central office, then yeah, that's not going to... Then there's no point in having a young person in there because he's not representing our interests. Do you know what I think is quite refreshing about British politics compared to American politics? Is you know when uh, at the last congressional elections, like the first Gen Z's, members of Congress were elected and it's like all they talk about is being Gen Z and I've just found it the most unbearable thing so I think it's quite good that a 25 year old has the same opinions as someone in their mid 60s 
<laughs> I um I was reading some interesting stuff about him. There was a good piece um in the Standard by someone who was mm. at Oxford with him that Ethan but, Croft, his name is. Yes, it's um, good writing. Who said that he's basically sort of was marked out from even when he was at uni that he was sort of going to be a Labour MP. No, um, treated the, like treated the relationship with the student press, yeah, as like, like one would. Did, you, did that ever happen to you at uni? When did you did you do student press? At? No, so Ava was significantly cooler than that. <laughs> I used to I used to go for coffees with the president of the student union. Oh, I never did that, but it was like bizarre. <laughs> no, I didn't really? do that. He was like, "Do you go for a coffee?" I was like. Yeah, and he talked to me about his priorities. It was bizarre. <laughs> priorities, <laughs> yeah. priorities for government. Yeah. And then, another, then another time, I was doing it was like the student, uh, the student <laughs> union elections, and this guy was like, I was going to interview him, and he said, um, "Shall we go for a walk?" I was like, "I don't really want to go for a walk because that's going to take way longer than the five minute chat I intended." I walked for him like around the meadows in Edinburgh for about thirty five minutes, and like, and I just had was recording the whole thing, and it was the corridors of power. Absolutely. Oh. That makes me, I love that you have continued that hatred towards anyone, like, you know, in, potentially in power throughout your career. That's been a thing that's been longstanding since university. It's my contempt for them. Contempt, yes. They wasted, my, they wasted my time when I was 19. Yeah. Uh, I was yeah. late to go to the pub and then... I think we did some slightly different student journalism, perhaps. I what did you do? Not that. I didn't do NUS. I didn't do SU stuff, no. I think it was only me who was interested in it, to be fair. In fairness, at Edinburgh, it is bizarrely, it is absurd. They are all kind of weirdos. I was doing like videos of the hockey team charging naked around the library. That was my... In your own time? No, yeah, I, I was filming it. I was filming it and they'd be like, look at these crazy guys! Look what they've done! Um, no, that was that's what I was doing. Um, I, you, neither of you took the bait, the Charlotte Owen bait that I dropped in my previous remark. <laughs> well, I didn't I think that we for. could. I could drop what I thought about the age thing before I had premised that with my... Mm. New, but I'm just trying to get mic time here. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, no, I said this earlier, but I, I don't think that being an elected 25-year-old is comparable to being an unelected, elevated 30-year-old to the House of Lords. I mean, those are so disparate and so different. I just think it's almost a waste of time to keep talking about it because the comparison is just not there. It, it, it's like comparing apples and oranges. I couldn't think of a better comparison. <laughs> <laughs> being being, um, being a, a, a bicameral parliament that has an elected chamber and an unelected chamber, like we can debate the, mer the merits of that and whether or not it should exist, but we have it. So is should we not have the same joy for a 30-year-old going into the Lords as we do for a 25-year-old? Not this 30-year-old. Well, no. I, I, was, I, was I, was trying to, I was trying to like <laughs> calm down. <laughs> but I, th I think a 30-year-old who has achieved something, done something of genuine note genuine public service genuinely improved the enhanced the lives of people in their community in, in their community across the country maybe achieve something in business sports even politics mm. something genuinely of note that 30 year old there might be an argument for them to be elevated to the house of lords not charlotte owen who did maybe you need to have a system where you tree. get like obe mbe and then you can qualify for the lords or something like that like there must be some kind of barometer for like what well why are you going to because what you do in the lords is you scrutinize all of the legislation that comes through the commons right i'm sorry i know i'm speaking stupid to both of you because you both know that but obviously <laughs> if you are 30 years old how on earth are you going to be pouring over a, a a long immigration brief and deciding is that the right move for the country if you've had a couple of years in industry mm -hmm. it's the same reason i mean there's loads of people in the lords sean bailey for example yeah what the hell is he doing in there 
<laughs> just losing mayoral elections. Yeah. I really think there's um, I think there's I think there's a bit of dis- dissonance between your both your positions on this. I got to be honest. I think like if we're going to dissonance. Yes. Okay. I think if we're going to have um, twenty five year old Keir and be like great young person in par- in parliament in the House of Commons, the same argument has to hold for Charlotte Owen. I disagree because the weight behind Keir matters. <laughs> Keir <laughs> matters. Um, Keir, we Keir's <laughs> legislative role, it, the weight comes from the electorate. And so there is there is an inherent yeah, yeah, I, justification. No, look, I get that. I understand that. But the House of Lords isn't elected. Like, it is really... No, but, but, but there's other reasons to be... But it's just inherent... The cronyism is so manifest and so absurd that Charlotte Owen got to the House of Lords. Yeah, the structures of power are different as well when you're in the Commons. Just because you've been elected as an MP doesn't mean that you're going to go get anywhere near the front bench. It doesn't mean that you're going to be able to start putting down, you know, big pieces of legislation and have, like, you know, weight given to it. I mean, how many private members' bills get put Mm -hmm. down and no one talks about them Mm -hmm. because they're all crap? (laughs) (laughs) Andrew Bridget spent the latter half of the last parliamentary term talking about um, vaccines being dangerous. Do you know how many times that bloke was in Parliament, in the Commons, trying to tell people? <laughs> no one <laughs> took any notice. Um, but in the Lords, you've actually got some quite serious, well, quite serious power for not really doing, for, uh, and no comeuppance. Mm-hmm. She's there for life. She gets, she gets to make laws for life. She's thirsty. She could live till she's 100. 70 years of... Charlotte Owen deciding what happens in oh, this yeah, country. Oh yeah, boom. Yeah, Keir can only might only have like four. Like he's got he's he going to be held to account he could every have a year, election. You could have a year and a half. Yeah, exactly. They could win back Selby and Insty. Hmm. Whereas Charlotte Owen just gets to be there. The, but the thing for me is all of these arguments that you're making, they're arguments against the House of Lords, right? That it's unelected. That some of them sit yeah. for life. Like, and that's fine. And we can have the discussion about whether or not sh- it's right that I the House of Lords sits in that way, but. It exists in the way that it exists. Surely it is for the better to have younger people in there representing the political interests yes, of younger I, people. I, I agree with that. I don't think Charlotte Owen is that right person. Because think about the people who get elected. So you're supposed to be elected, given a lordship, member of the House of Lords, for like because you are a captain of industry, years of public service, not because you were mates with the Prime Minister. I, th- I think of the other appointments, is it, is, I think I, most, I mostly object to the people who were appointed by Boris Johnson, like Ian Botham got it for services to Brexit. I think that's silly as well. Mm. It's, it's, not just, it's not just Charlotte Owen isn't the only objection. And I don't think her being young pushes back against the cronyism of it. But again, for me, that's a criticism of the resignation honours list, which again is a valid criticism and is like one we can, one we can Why discuss. Why can't we do both? Because and- I'm, I'm, tr- I'm, I'm trying to say that Okay, yes, we have an unelected chamber that scrutinises our, law, our, our laws. Yes, uh, prime ministers get to make honours when they resign. I, I disagree with both of those things. Well, actually, maybe not so much on the unelectable point of the House of Lords, and we can have that conversation if we want to, but it's, it's true. They exist. That's how it works in this country. And if we accept that we're going to debate sort of, you know, the pros and cons of things that happen within those things, then it's a, a good that a 30-year-old is in there because they're going to I think, represent... I think, that's, no. I think that's so... Like, Narrow. Or just... It's, it's not nuanced enough. I, th- I think that... You, the pros and cons. A 30-year-old is in there. Cons. She's in there because she 
worked for Boris Johnson for a year and a half and did nothing. Mm-hmm. I think, a thir- like, like I said earlier, a 30-year-old who had genuinely changed and helped the country is not just any 30-year-old. It's, the same, it's like um, descriptive representation. It's like, was it about if um, it's like using, it's a, I think it's a very blunt object, <clears throat> very blunt way to improve youth representation of just choosing any 30-year-olds to, to go into the House of Lords. I don't think that achieves anything. Like Jamal Edwards, I could imagine him being put into the House of Lords. For example, do you remember Jamal Edwards, who was like the uh, oh, yeah. SBTV? Yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah. All, you know, huge. He's dead, isn't he? Yeah, all right. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just saying, as an example of right. someone who was 30, sure. and, and I done... imagine them making quite a, a big impact in the House of Lords because of all the wealth of experience that they had. Mm. Now, I'm going to say something really controversial here. I think Nadine Dorries had more claim to becoming yeah. a peer than Charlotte Owen does. Definitely. Yeah, she, she definitely did. At least Nadine Dorries, I mean, like, you know, we agree on nothing. And I think what she did was horrendous. <laughs> However, at least she had some kind of experience with, like, you know, procuring vaccines, being a health minister during the pandemic, writing all the books that she did, actually being inside government and being an MP for all of that time. There's actually at least some kind of experience there that you can draw on. I don't understand how doing comms for the prime minister qualifies you to now scrutinise legislation. Forever. Forever. Charlotte Owen was in government during the pandemic as well. Yeah, but for what, a year? Why do you have this? Why are you so obsessed? I, I, why are I'm you no, so pro-Charlotte Owen? I'm not pro-Charlotte Owen. I'm just, I'm just, you know, I'm just trying to um, impose a bit of intellectual honesty on um, the arguments you're making. Um, I can't wait to read the comments. Oh, no, people go. People went absolutely nuts at me last time uh, I made this argument, so they'll do it again. Well, you um, should stop coming on here and using this to, you know, platform Charlotte <laughs> Owen. Foul <laughs> arguments! Charlotte Owen, come on in. Um, yeah. <laughs> Shall we talk about this in the context of kind of tactical voting as well? Because... Well, we can't. No, the by-elections. We can't The by-elections from where we've gone on a big old tangent to. Um, it was similar in the local elections, right? We sort of saw the, the initial signs of an increase in tactical voting and the same thing is happening now. Um, again, by-elections, different generals, but, you know, uh, Labour don't really campaign in Somerton and Froome. They actually lose their deposit, uh, which is... Quite interesting for a major party. Only 2.6% of the vote. Lib Dems win. And then in Selby, the Lib Dems finish sixth behind Reform, behind the Yorkshire Party. Um, And in Uxbridge, the Lib Dems got just 526. I mean, that really indicates to me that in each of those constituencies, the electorate is plumping for the second place. They're they're making sure that the second place replaces the Tory. Um, I think that's... If that, if that bears out in a general election, then it could be absolutely catastrophic for the Conservatives. Mm-hmm. You've also got to think about how expensive it is to campaign in a constituency. It's incredibly expensive. And as we know, Labour has no money at the moment. Mm. Like, it really doesn't have... It's paying out hell of a lot of money in court fees and libel fees and all sorts of things like that because of the anti-Semitism cases that were brought against the party. Mm. Um, or not just that, actually. Data breaches, loads of stuff. Yeah. So for Defining them to membership. Go, yeah, for them to storm down to Somerton and Froome and go, do you know what? We're going to spend, you know, <clears throat> it's hundreds of thousands of pounds it is to campaign. Mm-hmm. They don't have it. And the Greens are solid third in every single constituency. Well, a distant third, but still third nonetheless. Where was Lawrence Fox? Uh, I saw him in Oxbridge. Did he, did Binface beat him? He, I know he lost Maybe. his deposit. Yeah, he, oh, he, didn't do, he didn't do well. But what's important about that is that the day of the by-election... They tweeted out a picture of him. They were like, "Could this be the next prime minister?" Uh, and the electorate went, "No." He's <laughs> <laughs> also just, I think, to most normal people, he's an absolute nothing candidate. 
Yeah, you wouldn't no know one who knows, he was. No one knows who he is. No one wants to. It's, I think it's just kind of media people and fringe right-wing figures know who he is and like him. Mm. I think, like, I, I thought on Wednesday, I don't want to talk to Lawrence Falls because I don't want him to... He, he's, he's not a big enough... And as proven by the votes, he had, he had no bearing or waiting on that by-election. Yeah. Well, you didn't interview the Monster Raver Looning Party, did you? So well, that exactly, that exactly. Or I didn't, I didn't. Well, I didn't interview. Oh no, I did interview the Lib Dems, but we didn't publish it. <laughs> so that's how much waiting there was. You did, however, invite Bin Face into this studio and sit down with him yeah. for about half an hour. Yeah, we needed some numbers. You <laughs> <laughs> a book out. I, I do. It's think different. His commitment to the bit is quite extraordinary. Yeah. Maybe that's the same for Lawrence Fox. <laughs> it's performance art. It's uh, performance art. Lawrence Fox is a character. Uh, let's move on. Caricature, am I right? Oh, very good. Oh, oh. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Not another one? It's the Politics Show podcast. Ava Evans, you were capital J journalisming yesterday. All right, we'll play the clip. But listen, all right? I sound like a child, okay? <laughs> you do have the opportunity to... Uh, oh, yeah, we could just completely you cut could just that out. Say, oh, yeah. So, yeah, anyway, so yesterday I was there. <laughs> um, yeah, so Michael Gove was unveiling uh, the Department for Leveling Up's new plans to uh, build loads and loads of houses and how they're going to override lots of NIMBYs and just build and supply, mainly in Cambridge and a lot in East London, so around Silvertown, that kind of area. Mm. Um but this is going to take a while. So I asked him if he's given any consideration to Sadiq Khan's call for rain caps. Had he? Well, this is what we're going to hear now. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Two things there. I mean, the first is I don't believe in rent controls. Rent controls, uh, wherever they've been tried, have led to a constriction in supply. So you get uh, the temporary alleviation of pain, um, but only at the cost of actually making the underlying situation worse. So that's another area where I uh, like him though I do, where I disagree um, with Sadiq. Um, uh, on the second point, um, we need, as I mentioned in uh, response to Ben Beadle from the National Residential Landlords Association, we need a healthy rented sector because we need to have, both in terms of labour mobility um, and for other reasons, uh, a mix of different types of tenure uh, within the housing market. But I did mention earlier that we have taken some steps already to ensure that uh, uh, it is more expensive for people to acquire a second, a third or a fourth property than their very first property. Um, so the system is tilted towards, quite rightly, the first-time buyer, but there is more that we can do and more will follow. It was a difficult room for him because half of the room were landlords, 
councillors, town planners, all of them NIMBYs, <laughs> and people who have a vested interest in keeping the rental market excruciatingly high price for mm. renters. Um, and then the other half were journalists who don't care about young people. <laughs> um, if she'd been there... <laughs> she'd have been standing up. <laughs> there would have been no difference. <laughs> um, <laughs> Michael Gove has... If you look at his, his time as a minister, education, uh, sweeping reforms to the education system, uh, successfully campaigns for Brexit... And now doing like a, I'm not going to go as far as to say good, but making a meaningful change to housing and growth and local development. Is he the most effective Tory minister of the last 13 years? He's been building it, isn't he? There's a, well, a lot of commentators yesterday were saying he's the only one whose policies have actually stuck all the way through. Mm. So by that barometer, possibly... But I don't understand this sort of interim process, but period, sorry, because when, right, so you're not going to break ground for a while now. This is all going to consultation. Can we actually put these houses up in Cambridge? Can we put them up in Silvertown? What are we all going to do in that bizarre interim period? Is it going to turn into the 40 new hospital saga mm. where it's like, oh, this is going to look really great on the election manifesto, but we're never actually going to deliver them? Yeah, well, I mean, we can all, you can always level the criticism of why, isn't, why is this happening tomorrow? Why isn't it happening today? Um, it's they're moving in the right direction. I mean, they've they've built they've only built a mil, like there was a lot of trumpeting right this million million houses in this parliament figure, um, and it's like okay good house building good. Um, the Centre for Cities estimates that there is a shortfall of four point three million houses in this country. So you know you're a quarter of the way there. The next government should, in my view, commit to building a million houses every single year of the next parliament and little little treat little Chris Smage based hmm. treat for you one million of those houses should be small holdings which is a conversation we can have if you want to um, <laughs> and I'm going to take that as a no why do you want them to be that? because all these obsessed with farms um, I think that one of the only ways that we can effectively improve food security improve the quality of the food we consume and also combat the climate crisis is to radically overhaul the way that we live and one of the ways to do that is to sort of uh, boost agrarian localism. So what, subsistent farm? No. Do you want the feudal system back? We live in a feudal system now. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, Someone's elite. Wake up, sheeple. <laughs> um, but but um, what was I going to say? You know, how do you combat, uh, you know, extremely globalised supply chains that uh, will fall foul of systemic shocks like pandemics like climate change and all of the resulting chaos from an increasingly heating world. You grow food locally. Um, how do you resolve the complete lack of meaning that a lot of people feel in their day-to-day -day lives and work? You give them something meaningful to do, like uh, owning a farm, providing food for their families um, and their local communities as well, because that's the other key component is not just like you having a farm and making food for yourself, but being sort of in a cooperative, let's say, of 10 to 12. So, you know, maybe someone has... Um, maybe someone has a couple of cows, maybe someone has pigs, maybe someone has chickens, and you sort of have a localised economy where you share share resources. Um, it's anyway. quite utopian, isn't it? Uh, yeah. I, I, I can stitch you an Engl English romantic ideal if you want. Picture, Ava. You like a train. I, I do. You do like I a train. I have been known to like a train. Farms are to Ollie what trains are to Ava. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine. Ollie shags farms. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine, if you will, for a second, you are departing the 
high growth metropolis of London mm. on a maglev train bound for Manchester. You've lost me. <laughs> <laughs> as as your high speed train cruises through Birmingham and continues on the now defunct legs of HS2, mm -hmm. which we will revive as well, you see the wood smoke rising above an agroforestry, a massive forest all across the Midlands. The, the wood smoke rising from a million small holdings where people grow their own food, raise their own animals, um, combining regenerative farming and um, agroforestry to not just um, provide secure and tasty food for everyone, but also to extract carbon from the atmosphere. Um, that can be the life we lead. You could actually go and talk to the levelling up department about this because I think they'd like it. Particularly as one of <laughs> Is that his an big, insult? No, one of his big <laughs> points yesterday was he want, Gove wants to introduce densification. So he wants to make cities more dense. Mm -hmm. He wants to have more GPs, flats, apartments, but in a smaller space because apparently that emits, I can't remember the percentage, but it's considerably less carbon emissions, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So do that. And then as you go out into the country, you've got all of these people living... Yeah. Yeah, you want kind of gentle density in the cities. Like it's one of the big things with other if you compare British cities with European cities, right? If you walk around, I don't know, let's say Paris, you'll notice that basically all of the buildings are about six stories high. Um, tons of tons of flats, tons of accommodation, tons of offices. Whereas in the UK we're much more, you know, um tower blocks in central cities, but then two-story houses all the way out. Mm. Um and having that gentle density is one of the things actually I th with the Cambridge, I don't know if you've looked at any of the sort of like AI or artist impressions of like what this Cambridge quarter is going to look like, but mm. they're all those sort of five, six story buildings. Um, when Rory Stewart was campaigning uh, in for the London elections, one of he was he suggested something to me. He said, um, "You know, look at this, look at this two two story terraced house. You know, if we could, if we had the funds, we could convince these people to sort of move out temporarily, and then we'd build another three or four stories on top, and we'd have this gentle density all across London. We'd create tons of housing, um, and." Again, it's it's if you have an open mind about these things, whether it's building a million small holdings or whether it's evicting people from their homes so that you can build like another two homes on top of them, um, it's actually quite possible to resolve some of these problems. If you have like, do you know, um, do you know Cheems? Do you know who Cheems is? No. You know, you know the like um, the little dog meme on like Dogecoin. Yes. Yeah. Uh, right. That, yeah. He is Cheems. Okay. His name ah. is Cheems. Um, and he obviously comes from a meme where he's like the little yeah. dog and then there's like the huge jacked dog, right? Sorry. Yes. So the huge jacked dog is like, yes, we will build a million small holdings, 10,000 miles of high speed rail line. And then like Cheems is there like, I hate quick trains. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I think open-mindedness is a real, or sorry, a lack of open, close-mindedness, you might say. Yes. It's a real barrier to a lot of... <laughs> These things, like there's a comment I saw about um, Gove's housing plans, where they're talking about um, taking over commercial property and repurposing it as residential property. And so, someone went, "Who wants to live in a betting shop?" <laughs> so, which I think people's attitudes to it, like is the, probably the hardest thing to surmount. Well, that, so go on. Oh, well, I was going to say that is you're absolutely right, and that's why changing sort of the planning system is absolutely fundamental to all of this because at the moment at the moment we have what's called a discretionary system right so um it, planning guidance is um plans should or should not have this you know it's like it's optional and then each p every single planning application is sort of taken on merit and 
there are positives to that, which means you can be flexible and you know developments can be taken on a case by case basis. But what it means for developers is it's far better if you actually have a system where instead of like the planning guidelines saying should or should not, they say will or will not, so that you know when you're planning something it will be accepted because it's going to meet the criteria of the planning system. It's called discretionary versus regulatory. Um, and if you were to have a regulatory system like that that had zonal planning, i.e., you just mark off a bit of bit of the city and say this is where houses are going to be built, and if it meets, meets these criteria it will be accepted, you you basically revolutionise the way house building works in this country. At the moment, because it's discretionary and because public consultation happens on every single development rather than, we'd like to zone this for residential. You, ha you have input now, but beyond that, you, you basically get to decide maybe like some of the materials that get used so it's in keeping with the area, but you won't get to say no to the houses mm. once the zone has been applied. Um, if we don't do those things, then we're not going to achieve the sort of the level of growth that we want with this stuff. And the team's mindset is the kind of, but I don't want to live in a betting shop, you know. I agree with you on that. I mean, yeah, local people are never going to vote for anything that lowers housing, housing prices. They're yep. just not, right? Like, mm -hmm. why, why would you vote to, to reduce your, your way of life? Mm -hmm. But then you look at developments like what was going to happen in Brixton, and there was a huge public consultation that stopped that huge town. The, Hon the Honda Enterprises. Yeah, because they were going to knock down a shopping centre that any all the locals use and love and enjoy. But I suppose if you don't live in that area and you're not familiar with that kind of Afro-Caribbean like array of, of shops, mm -hmm. you'd go, well, I don't like that's not that's yeah, not helpful. Just no, get rid of it. There was, there was very little nuance around that debate when that was announced. That was um, for the listeners who don't know. Hondo Enterprises were proposing setting up a tower block in Brixton, right in the middle of kind of the community centre where there's a lot of large Afro-Caribbean population who have been kind of forced out by gentrification. Mm. And the, ca the campaigners against it were making a point that this block was not for the local community. It was for the yuppies who live in, say, Clapham or further afield who come to Brixton for a night out. It was for like the nighttime economy. So they'd go to Pop Brixton or whatever, they could go to work in this tower block in Brixton and then go to Pop Brixton and then eat at the, you know, Franco Manca and then leave Brixton. Whereas the people who've lived there for generations, tradition, from an ethnic minority back, back, background, they were being forced out. And so that was why there was a big campaign to stop this being, stop this being built. And mm. it was, um, there was a big, there was a, part, a street party on Friday to celebrate it. Mm. Did you go? I did, I did not, I was invited, but I did not go. I'm just increasingly frustrated by the number of offices that are still being built in in the city. Like, it's just absolutely extraordinary. Like, how many... I, see, I was walking, actually, this morning past another construction site that's near my flat in... I'm East not telling you. East, <laughs> yeah, East London. <laughs> um, I was just thinking, everywhere you look, there is two let signs in the windows. Why on earth are you building another office block here? that is not going to be used and is going to be vacant. And offices are, are terrible for carbon emissions. Absolutely awful. You've got aircon blasting in there all day. You know, you've got computers on, all of that crap. I don't understand why, sorry, why the Mayor of London, and Sadiq, I never want to criticise you because I'm a big fan of you, Les, but you put all of this energy <laughs> into you, Les, and you don't look at town planning or get involved in that in any way. Yeah, I mean, he's kind of, um, he's hamstrung pretty strongly isn't he right like he's been saying he wanted to he wants to introduce rent controls um since before the last election and the national labor party isn't supporting him doing it and obviously the conservative government is not going to allow it. he doesn't actually have the power to do it right he can say that he wants to do it but basically beyond 
basically creating London's transport policy and effectively sacking uh, the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, mm. although it is the Home Secretary who chooses her, their successor. Um, he doesn't actually have that much power. Mm-hmm. I would like to hear a better a better campaign for rent controls, though, because I just think those two words are frightening. So if you are in a, a smaller city or you are in like the countryside or whatever and you rent out your house... For, you know, for a fair price to someone else. That is not the same. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about in London, rents have gone up. I think I read 28% the other day mm. on average, but I, I can assure you just from stories from my friends and people I know, it's a hell of a lot more than that. One bedrooms in London are like are going for three grand. I'm not exaggerating. Mm. A month, mm. a month. And what, what should be being explained is landlords should not be allowed to have a mortgage that is, say, £700 on a property and then be taking in £2,300 of profit a month. They should not be allowed to do that. Also indiscriminately raising the rent um, without making improvements to the property. Mm. The, like the value of the property hasn't gone up and you're charging, looking to, to double. Someone, someone we know's rent is going up double in by the end of their lease. So why is that allowed? Fuck. And why isn't there proper information around this? Why is it, why, why is the conversation framed? Like, well, landlords have expenses. Yes, I understand that. Mm-hmm. But, and we were paying for most of them. Yes. <laughs> a public register actually of um, rent wouldn't actually be a bad idea because that way you'd be able to see, you know, if, you're, if you are being doubled or you are being charged mm-hmm. three grand or whatever, you can say, well, actually everyone in the area is paying two thirds of what you're asking me to pay. But I think, that's, I think the problem is everyone's rent is growing up. So then the landlord could say, hang on, everyone else yeah, no, I'm not saying it's going to resolve the situation entirely. I'm just... We might get a better be narrative around it. I asked Gove that yesterday as well. I said, this new uh, complex that you're going to build in Silvertown, I said, are you going to prioritise first-time buyers rather than landlords? And he said, well, no, a healthy rental sector is integral to the mm. society that we live in. And mm. it was like... Okay, cool. So you build all these new houses, landlords hoover them up, and we're in the same problem that we're in right now, but just in five years' time. There's um, a really, really good book by Michael Gillard called Legacy uh, about the London Olympics and uh, organised crime families in East London, uh, particularly based in Silvertown, and the way that they profited massively from basic, from selling the land that they owned for development. And uh, I'm sure he's looking into who's going to be selling this land to the government because... Uh, Trust me, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of very dangerous people around there. Very dangerous indeed. It's the politics show podcast. Prevention, yes, is the best medicine. Absolutely. So, uh, big news out today. Health Foundation, a think tank, projects that the number of people living with major illnesses in England will rise nine times faster than the healthy working age population. By 2040, nearly one in five people will have health conditions such as dementia and cancer, which is up from one in six in 2019. Uh, the think tank says this will require a radical shift with more care in the community rather than hospitals. Uh, and most of the increase is being driven by the aging population, uh, particularly people getting anxiety, depression, and obesity is one of the major factors that will drive the rise in illnesses. And I want to talk about this in relation to Keir Starmer and his plans for the health service because his whole thing, right? No sticking plaster politics and we can hate that phrase as much as we want but what it symbolises is rather than being short-termist and addressing symptoms of problems, what he wants to do in government is prevent the problems before they start. He wants to have this sort of long-termist, reformist agenda and presumably by introducing that prevention into the health service, 
stop something like this from happening. Um, thoughts and feelings, Ava, on this? I find this confusing because I think that their policy up until now toward the NHS has been about short-termism and not about prevention. So when you've got West Streeting talking about engaging with the private sector to clear the backlog, the waiting list and all of that, and, and talking about how the NHS is not um, is actually not for <laughs> prevention, it's for short-term illnesses and fixing things quickly, I don't understand how those things tally because then that would mean that the leader's office and the shadow cabinet are at odds with each other. They're saying mm -hmm. two different things. And I also just don't think that the NHS is in a state at the moment. It's lovely to think this, that yes, we should make this about prevention. It's got nowhere near enough money. It's got nowhere near enough doctors or capacity or facilities to start talking about minor, minor illnesses. Like how on earth can we start dealing with obesity when you can't even get a cancer diagnosis within the amount of, I mean, my grandmother right now is still waiting to hear back if she's got cancer and she's been waiting for six weeks now. This is just, this is what's going on. Mm. So this just feels pie in the sky to me. But I think, is that, is that not what Starmer has been criticized for? For like lack of big thinking. Mm -hmm. And so this is big thinking. I think it's quite an exciting proposal. And so is this one of these things he's like, you can't do anything right. I, don't, I, I completely understand what you mean, like the NHS is in crisis, but this is like a really big, important plan. And if it, if it works, then grand. I, 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 it's more of an observation, as in like, I Chris think Starmer can't. I hear what do you're saying. Right. I think um, I, I did, um, because I am media darling, Ollie Dugmore, I did um, cross question on LBC a couple of months ago, and I was with Kate Andrews, and she was talking about how uh, we have some of the highest per capita spend on our health system uh, in Europe, but also globally. Uh, and we have some of the worst outcomes uh, in Europe, particularly in relation to, I think it was cardiovascular disease and cancer as well. Um, I disagreed with her solutions to the problems, but the diagnosis there, the facts she was pointing to are facts. They are true. Um, so yes, more money for doctors, Yes, more money into the health service, but you do at some point have to ask the question, like, what are we going to change? What are we going to reform? Because if we keep spending all this money, but not, but we're getting worse outcomes than people who spend less, what's the difference? And whilst I don't think that the change that we should make is moving towards a semi-privatized system or, you know, a, um, an insurance subsidy based system or whatever it is, I think that particularly what um, Starmer's talking for here, right, talking about prevention. Because if we're talking about obesity, right, what's, if you're a health service, what's better for you? Is it to provide people with access to uh, local sports clubs, sports teams, exercise, reopening leisure centers, providing exercise, proper education about diets, securing the food supply, and giving people <laughs> high, quality, high quality organic produce? Um, or, you know... Uh, Azempic prescriptions, uh, gastric bypass, gastric band surgery. Uh, obviously, it is more cost-effective as a health service to do the former rather than it is the latter. Um, but that's where I think that the, the that's where I think there's some disconnect because that needs to start in school. So when Keir Starmer is talking about he doesn't think there's enough money for free school lunches, I know they've talked about breakfast clubs, but also you know mental health provision in primary schools, that's where it begins. I mean, think about when the NHS first came about, what was one of the first things they did? Give people who were living in the slums of London 
and Manchester and Liverpool, milk. That was like one of the first things that they did. And it was free on the National Health Service and apple juice because giving children nutrients means that in 40 years time, they probably don't have rickets. <laughs> it's just very simple. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like the diagnosis is right. And I think that the way that he is intending to go about it is wrong. Yeah, I think my... Um my criticism here of him is I, I, I agree about sort of reform and I agree about uh, moving towards a preventative model rather than, you know, um, dealing with problems later. But I think I would I actually would look to uh, Portugal and the way they approached uh, drug decrim, right? Which wasn't just we're going to decriminalise drugs. It was we have to provide good quality public housing. We have to make sure that the health service functions appropriately. We have to improve community policing because doing one of those things, i.e. decriminalizing drugs in isolation, will not have the desired health outcomes that we want unless we get all of the picture right. And for me to get all of the picture right, it is going to require a lot of spend. It's going to require tax and spend. It's going to require redistribution of income to address wealth inequality, health inequality. And it's not, you can't just say, um, AI is going to improve cancer diagnostics because it will, don't get me wrong, but if you actually want to reorient and make serious, long-lasting, systemic, structural changes to healthcare and society as a whole, AI is not going to do that alone. The whole government program has to adapt to it. Well, that's going to be hard because DCMS doesn't actually know what AI is right now. <laughs> <laughs> so... I think one of them who shan't be named, one of the select committee tweeted out a Photoshop and was like, oh, did you know you could do this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we did. <laughs> um, but that was interesting, that piece in the New Statesman about this, right? Yeah. I didn't, I didn't know about the think tank that he'd written that whole thing about prevention in politics for. Um, there's a, there was a piece, sorry, in for listeners, there was a piece in the New Statesman called Keir Starmer's Prevention Politics written by one of his former advisors uh, and... I thought it was quite eye-opening. The Public First is the think tank. Yeah, never heard she of She works at. No. Neither had I. But, but then, she's been doing that. They do polling for UK and a changing Europe. Oh, right, okay. Wait until GB News gets hold of this. <laughs> <laughs> Just red meat for it. We're doing their work for them. They're actually a bit busy at the moment, though, anyway, aren't they? Because they are pretending that the sun isn't hot. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, very good. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Should I should have. <laughs> I thought you knew that's where I was going. Didn't know that's where you were going. No. Should we come up with stuff for GB News to talk about in case they're watching? I don't think they are watching. What do you, you want to talk about? I don't know. Just try and feed them. Could you make something up and see if they. <laughs> there <laughs> see is if they something quite funny. Did you watch the segment last night with the Coast Guy and Dan I don't. I don't watch GB News, believe it or not. Oh, well. I saw a clip of it on Twitter. I didn't watch it. Yeah, that's what I did too. I did <laughs> right. not have it you on. You turned the sound on. <laughs> yeah. Not have it on last night. <laughs> Hours. Um, they were talking about. Do you actually watch it? Every now and again, yeah. I, I think it's. I think. I'm really sorry. It's quite good television. So much goes wrong all the time. <laughs> That's the opposite of good television. Um, well, maybe to you. Um, <laughs> anyway, so they were talking about ground temperature versus air temperature and how there is no such thing as global warming and how it's always been this hot and climate change is a myth to frighten you. And they're trying to make you frightened of weather. And it's so funny because at the same time, they were sort of showing this kind of carousel of images of Greece on fire. <laughs> And do you know what they're now saying, a lot of the commenters? They think it's arson. Oh, my God. Genuinely. Yeah, there's, um, there's quite a strong line in climate denial of basically blaming wildfires on, on arson. Um, 
the, the, the gap in the thinking for me is even if we accept that the fires were started by people, the fact that they have then engulfed an entire <laughs> Greek island yeah. is like people committed arson before. There was, there was, yeah, there was plenty of arson going around, yeah. um, but it didn't result to like tens of thousands of people being evacuated from roads. Okay, so do you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna be devil's advocate there. Hmm. <laughs> Explain me the Great Fire of London. It was a very hot and dry summer, wasn't it? And everything set on fire. Yeah, sorry, I don't mean <laughs> right. <laughs> so a lot, obviously, you know, a lot of the buildings were thatched. Um, yeah. had a lot of flammable materials and it was hot and dry. The well-documented and extensive warming of the planet has meant that the natural environment in Greece is now more susceptible to wildfires. I'm glad that you took my point seriously. I don't even really know what you meant. <laughs> you not, well, they could there make the summers? argument that fire spread rapidly then as well. Right. <laughs> You've got you to get ahead of the conspirators. <laughs> yeah, but no, no, you're, you're giving them ideas. You're, giving, you're feeding them the lines. Yeah. How do you think I know all about this? <laughs> in, in, 19, in 1945, Dresden experienced a firestorm. And yeah, maybe it was because the Allies dropped incendiary explosives on the city for days on end, but we had them before. <laughs> yeah, fuck me. It's, I think it's also just unfortunate and very quite Britain is crap era. Britain in its flop era. That we're doing. That we're doing. Britain's um, got a flop on. <laughs> that we're like, this is happening. Like, Brits are experiencing climate change firsthand in Greece or other Greek people. But we're Britons, so we only care about Brits. Mm. Um, and we're t- talking about fucking ULEs. Just being like, is just really a vote winner? It doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't fucking matter. These 495 people who didn't vote. 496 people vote for Labour we're not having a conversation about ULEs and like Greece is on fucking fire and it's the, the lack of urgency about climate change in British politics is actually just scary build one million farms mm. ah, and there's no Richard didn't actually <laughs> listen to his fucking daughter the thing, the thing about ULEs though is like primarily it's about air pollution right but it's about it's about air quality yeah. You know, it's about it's about improving people's health outcomes because of the air they breathe. Yes, obviously there are CO2 emissions from cars, but that's actually not the primary driver, right? It's like mm. it's an added benefit that it will reduce that. It's about the actual emissions, the the other bits and pieces that come out of car exhaust and how they harm people's lungs. And the conflation of like, well, what we've seen from the Uxbridge by-election is actually voters aren't that hot on green policies. <laughs> yeah. and, and, Shut up. And, maybe, and, maybe, and maybe we should, you know, reflect and relax some of our aims to maybe not sell diesel and petrol cars after 2030 or, you know, push net zero back beyond 2050. It's like, that is not. No. That is not the interpretation. Shut up. Do you remember when we were children and there was that advert about driving 30 and it was like that child that was dead on the floor. Yeah. Yes, and then it was like, 30, you don't want to hit this child, do you? So drive sensibly. Mm. I think we need to put choking children on billboards. So we need to be like, is your Range Rover really more important than little mm. Sarah here? Because be she effective. can't breathe. Yeah, that would be effective. Probably more effective than the uh, mate. Yeah. Yeah. Mate. Yeah, well, they, th- that's actually what it sounds like when an asthmatic child tries to say mate <laughs> because they've been breathing in diesel. Mate. <laughs> Cool. Is that the end? I, I guess so. <laughs> um, if you'd like to talk about this episode of the podcast, uh, please join us on our subreddit, r slash politics Joe. There's going to be lots of conversation, mainly from Ed Campbell. 
Um, if you want to, <laughs> I'm the mod. If you, <laughs> I will crack down that bat hammer at any. If you want to tell him why Charlotte Owen is a ripe appointment to the House of Lords, that's the place to do it. You will get blocked. Uh, see you on the next one. Thanks, guys. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at fifty dollars luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.